everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today, episode 79. And I'm titling this one, So You Want to Start a Lumber Yard? I get questions periodically from folks asking about how they would go about starting a lumber yard. Usually it's people that have started sawing up logs on their own. Maybe they bought up, you know, a sawmill or something like that. And they started to realize maybe they could sell some of their wood. And they're just wondering how they go about it. Well, seeing as I've been talking about this urban logging and this new grassroots movement that could potentially change the entire industry, I figured maybe it was time to talk about what you might want to think about when you decide you want to start selling your lumber. So that's the theme this week. Um, I do want to uh, get into a little bit of industry news because I saw a hardwood market report um, this week and several, not only hardwood market review, but uh, several other millwork publications that I subscribe to have both are all cited an increase in North American sourcing for lumber and plywood, uh, certainly as well as um, like cabinet hardware and stuff. Overall, we're looking like a 10% increase across the market. Now, this is still very early, but it's certainly a noticeable spike. And when you look over the long term, this is kind of a big deal. And this goes back to some of my predictions talking about how the exotics are going to start to play less and less of a role and more... Um, users, contractors, architects, woodworkers are going to be turning towards their local, local and locally sourced lumber. So looks like even the industry is starting to uh, play that out. Also, um, I actually got a question, but I kind of want to throw this under industry updates. I get um, questions about uh, tree identification. And I recently took a trip out to Colorado to visit my mom and on my Instagram, Lumber Update Instagram, I posted lots of pictures of trees that I ran, ran into across the country. And I kept getting questions about, well, how do you know that's that kind of tree? I walk by trees all the time and I wish I knew what it was. And I wish I could say that I just have this exhaustive knowledge of, of trees. Um, I'm good at, at quite a few of them, the ones that are around me, but when it comes to new and unusual trees, no. Um, and there's no book and there's no intensive studying. It's the, uh, it's the modern age. I have an app for that. There's an app for everything, right? There's an app called Picture This that I've been using for a couple of years now, and I've grown to really trust it. It's, it's quite reliable. And basically, you pull up the app, you take a picture of the tree, um, you can take a picture of the bark, you take a picture of the leaves, try to get as much of the tree as you can, and obviously have it in focus and it will um, analyze it right there, and it gives you um, its suggestion. The good news is, is it backs up that suggestion with other images of that tree, it gives you descriptions, it tells you about its geographic distribution, so you can kind of fact check it and look at it and say, okay, is this what I'm seeing or is the app a little off? And sometimes I, I, if I take the same picture twice, it will give me different examples, so maybe it's a little on the fence. So. It's kind of cool because it doesn't just spit out the answer. You do have to do a little bit of digging on your own, which in my opinion, it helps me to actually learn those trees so that when I see them in the future, I can actually recognize them without pulling up the app. But yeah, no, um, no secret uh, stash of knowledge. It's just an app that helps me out. So picture this is the name of that app. Um, it's also helpful for like shrubs and weeds in, in the yard. Like if you, if like me, you can be within 100 feet of poison ivy and get it. And sometimes you don't want to get close enough to identify it. You can take a picture of it and you can have it identify it and say, no, that's not poison ivy. That's poison sumac. Run away. 
really, really useful app. And uh, I highly recommend it. There is a, a free version and also a paid version. Um, I went ahead and paid, I think it was the $14 a year just because I wanted to support developer because it's such a really nice app. But um, additional functionality, I don't know that I've seen that much difference. I'm sure I have now that I'm a paid subscriber. I don't notice what I'm getting that I'm actually paying for, but I think it's worth it in my opinion. So anyway, um, some interesting feedback came in. Um, I got this article sent to me from a couple different folks, uh, but uh, first, in, first in the inbox was Bart. He shared um, this article with a quote that said, I guess no more river tables. So a lot of um, uh, research is coming back saying that, well, this river table, this port epoxy phenomenon could be quite bad for us. Um, bisphenol A, uh, a diglycidal ether, or badge, as what it's known for short, is uh, the stuff that we're finding in epoxy. And it is an endocrine disruptor that can hijack the body's hormone functions um, it, at even tiny concentrations. It's linked to multiple health problems, including cancer, diabetes, uh, reproductive impacts, behavioral problems, and especially harmful to unborn and young children whose hormone systems are still in development. So uh, this reads like a you know side effects of a drug commercial, but the, the point is that's the stuff that's in epoxy. That's the stuff that's curing an epoxy. Now, does that mean don't ever use epoxy? Don't go near it with a 10-foot pole? No, but it does mean use personal protective equipment. Put on a respirator, preferably... Um, a really good respirator, even maybe one with a charcoal filter, if you're using epoxy. As it's curing, this stuff is going into the air. So it's just something to think about. I guess it's really no surprise that everything in this world seems to cause cancer, um, but just one of those things. You know, woodworkers are constantly worried about wood dust and things like that, and we know about wearing our respirators to protect ourselves against um, those fine particles of wood dust. Well, if you're pouring that river table or doing that bar top countertop epoxy, or even just possibly gluing up joints with epoxy. It's something to think about. Wear your respirator, folks. I really had very little to do with wood, but there's a lot of woodworkers listening to this show, so I really wanted to throw that out there. I'll probably even put that, you know, public safety announcement on Wood Talk at some point, just because I think it's important for people to be aware of the stuff that we're working with in our shops. Now, on a, on a entirely different note, this is really cool. Sterling shared... Um, this link to uh, with me that is a link to the Vancouver, Canada tree database, and it's exactly that. The city of Vancouver has logged every single tree in their city limits, and they've they've geotagged it, and they've got quite a bit of metadata about each tree, um, measurements on the tree, certainly the species of the tree, in many instances when the tree was actually planted. And then, of course, as I said, it's got GPS coordinates. You can be like driving down the street and see, ooh, that's a pretty tree. Um, if you don't have the picture of this app, you can pull up the database, literally zoom in to the, the block that you're on, and you can actually see, okay, that's, that's a cherry tree. And, oh, and by the way, it was planted on this date. Um, very cool stuff. And really, I mean, it could be, something that the city of Vancouver could actually be using as like a silvicultural plan, you know, a plan going forward. I'm not exactly sure what the catalyst for this was, but there's obviously been quite a bit of data collection over the years. Um, one thing I found particularly interesting is if you zoom out, obviously it's just the city of Vancouver, but for some reason there is a single data point in Quebec, in Quebec City. <laughs> I don't know whether they like moved a tree from Vancouver over to Quebec. So there's one tree in Quebec City and then 
of course, it's all located right there in Vancouver. But uh, thank you, Sterling. This is cool. If anybody knows of a database like this for other cities or other cities that are doing this, please let me know. I personally haven't done any digging yet, but I think that, that it's, it's just a really cool thing to see. And I'd love to see more cities kind of jumping on that. So I do want to answer uh, a few emails before we get into the main segment. Um, Michael wrote me and said, uh, my neighbors and I just milled up some trees that were on our properties. It was mostly cherry, a little black walnut, and some maple. Unfortunately, we didn't stick to the wood right away due to time constraints. Most of the wood was fine except for the maple. It glued black mold on all sides of each board. We were hoping seven days wasn't too long. Do you have any suggestions to remove the mold? Is the board ruined? So um, yeah, easy. the board is not ruined by any means. It's no surprising that it's the maple board. You know, maple syrup comes from maple trees. It's a very sugary tree. The mold loves that stuff. Also, if you just cut them down, you know, it's summer as I'm recording this, the sap is rising. It's not the best time to cut trees down. Um, it's not it's not terrible, but the reason that we don't cut trees down in the spring and the summer is because the sap is rising. So there's a lot of sugar in that wood and the mold and the bugs and things like that will be um, all over that stuff. Um, if you're going to air dry it, you're going to want to stay on top of this. Um, if you're going to kiln dry it, it's okay. Just you want to get into the kiln as quickly as possible. So regarding the mold, um, get a little bit of borax um, or even um, Clorox bleach. Um, and put it into a, a, a water solution, maybe a one to three um, borax to, to water solution. Then spray it on the, the boards, saturate the boards, let it sit for like five or 10 minutes. Um, and that's going to kill off the mold. If it's on there pretty thick, you're gonna have to come in and scrub it off, but you do definitely want to saturate it. Um, wear a respirator when you're scrubbing it as well, but saturating it with that solution will help kill it so that anything that does kind of get um, aerosolated, is that a word? Gets put up into the air as you're scrubbing it off. At least it should be dead. Um, spray it, let it sit, scrub it, and then spray it again once you've actually got the mold off the surface and then leave that there to dry. Now you're gonna wanna put um, airflow sticker and put airflow on that board right away. But as I said, because you felled it in the summertime, that board is gonna be filled with sugars filled with stuff that bugs and mold and fungus and things are going to like. So you're probably going to want to keep an eye on it for at least the first month um, to make sure that no mold grows back and make sure you don't have any boring insect problems. That is the issue of felling things in the summer. But certainly as long as you stay on top of it, it's not going to ruin the board. It is literally just skin deep. Um, just don't ignore it for six months and come back and be surprised if there isn't mold on it again. Now, Jake has some peach wood, and um, this came out of a tree, I want to say out of his grandmother's yard, and of course, it's got a little bit of sentimental value. He wants to build something for his grandmother with it, and he was curious about it. He, he couldn't find anything about peach wood, and this is kind of typical with a lot of the fruit woods. They, um, they roll up under the rose family of fruit woods. <clears throat> There's a lot of different species in the rose family. Sometimes they can be really hard to identify in the wood form. Certainly you can identify them by the fruit. Um, but really, they're not commercially used for lumber as their role in this world is producing fruit. So they are cultivated as such. They're pruned accordingly. Every time you prune it, you're going to end up with more growth. It's like your rose bush. Um, if you 
cut the the blooms off i think it's below the first leaf a lot of times you'll get like two blooms or three blooms in response to that so the the more blooms you want on your rose bush or or any flower um, the more you want to prune it same thing with the um, fruit trees you think of the apple or the pear or the peach as the bloom you want more of those so you're going to continue to prune it um the other thing is, is these are field trees that are branching quickly. We want them to branch quickly because that's going to produce the fruit. So you don't end up with a central bowl that's long and straight grain. It's going to be quite knotty and gnarly because that's how the tree is grown. So as a lumber producing species, it's really overlooked. You know, it wouldn't make very good lumber to begin with. Usually it's going to be smaller boards and things like that, which is what I found interesting that the, the distant company chose applewood for their handles. I know why they did. It's a very dense wood. It's, it's a beautiful wood, but real difficult <laughs> to get it. You know, granted, saw handles are quite small and you can use the prunings from apple trees for that. But since no one was actually cutting down the apple trees because you actually want to keep it to make apples, it's kind of an odd solution um, or an odd um, choice of wood for the, the distant company that makes saw handles. But anyway, um, peach specifically, uh, again, it's in the rose family. The genus is prunus, which is the same genus as cherry. Um, uh, specifically, peach wood is prunus persica. And <clears throat> that's another kind of hint as to what the wood's going to be like. It's in the same genus as cherry. They're going to be kind of cousins. And if you look at peach wood, you could mistake it for cherry. It's a little bit more striated, a little bit more uh, gradation in color than cherry, but the density and the workability of it is quite the same. It is hard-ish, but again, you're gonna find a lot of variability from one peach tree to the next, from one pear tree to the next, even from one cherry tree to the next. So a lot of times you kind of have to go with a wide range. <clears throat> Fruit woods, you're gonna find anywhere from 900 Janka hardness up to about 2000. But they're all going to be diffuse porous, um, medium-sized medullary rays, and little to no um, parenchyma. So it's it's a it's a denser wood. Again, think of how black cherry um, uh, prunus aretina works. Um, it's going to be very similar to that. <laughs> it's definitely not impossible um, to work at all. It is going to be dense, going to be hard, but it's absolutely worth the effort just because of the. I think the beauty of peach wood, another thing, by the way, pear wood, um, pear is, is almost entirely white, but man, that stuff turns absolutely beautiful. And I'm not talking about European pear, although that turns beautifully as well. Um, pear again, oh shoot, it's in the rose family. I don't know the, the Latin botanical off the top of my head. Sorry, <laughs> sorry to disappoint folks. I don't know every tree's Latin botanical. I could Google it, but I've, I've turned a lot of, of pear, absolutely wonderful stuff. I've turned some peach. I've never actually built um, you know any flat work out of peach, but fruit woods in general, if you can get your hands on them, go for it. Really great stuff. And then Josh has a question about wholesale buying. He says, I'm making some deck chairs from African teak. And uh, I'm currently getting my boards from a local dealer. By the way, African Teak um, could be Afromoja, also be known as Iroko. Um, that's it. African Teak is a marketing name, so it's hard to say what species he's working with. Um, he says, I'm at the point where I'm willing to make a, a larger purchase in order to save some money off the board foot price, but I'm curious how to go about that. I could negotiate with my hardware dealer, but what about contacting the importer directly? What's the best way to find a distributor? And what are the typical volumes of orders that I need to place? So a lot of places, just rule of thumb, a lot of places start at about 500 board feet. Um, 
some of them will go as low as 100 board feet. And some of that depends upon the species you're buying. Exotics, that number may go down because obviously the, the, the cost is going to go up and the availability is also going to go down. It may be difficult to get 500 board feet of a particular species you're looking for. Um, whether he's talking about Aphromosia or Iroko, well, if it's Aphromosia, it's probably going to be a lower amount, but it's also going to be more expensive because Aphromosia is a Cites Appendix 2 listed species. Iroko is not Cites listed and is available in large quantities, very, very large tree, large boards. So that would probably be more like a 500 board foot minimum order, um, whereas the uh, Aphromosia is probably going to be more like 100 board foot. That's going to vary from dealer to dealer and species to species. My thought is, if you're already doing business with a local dealer, I would prefer to give them the business if, if at all possible. So go to them and tell them what you're trying to do. You know, I'm looking for a larger order. I'm hoping to be able to save some money and get to more of a wholesale price. The thing is, that local dealer is still going to be buying from an importer of record, unless that local dealer is the importer of record. If they're not, there's still going to be another person in the chain, which is going to have their costs associated with it and their markup to your local dealer. So obviously the way to save the most money is to go to the importer of, of record directly. But just be aware what happens when you do that. You are cutting out your local dealer. And with the way the market is right now, those local dealers are hanging on by their fingernails. So just something to think about. Um, we're all in that situation, so we're all trying to save the money as much as we can, but recognize if your local dealer went away, what would that mean for the long term? Certainly you're in a position where you're buying wholesale now, but what if you need those one or two boards? It's just something to think about um, as far as just doing business in a, in a community. Um, it's a bit of a judgment call on your, on your heart. So go to your local dealer first and find out what their thresholds would be and find out really what kind of savings you're looking for. Then what you can do, um, if you have purchased lumber from them in the past, it's, it's relatively easy to ask them, you know, if it's exotics, um, who is the importer of record on this? You know, you can put it under the guise of I'm, I'm researching it from a sustainability perspective. You could very quickly and easily figure out um, who that importer of record is. You could possibly reach out to them about placing a wholesale order. The thing is, once you go upstream in the supply chain, that minimum order number that I was talking about before from 100 to 500 board feet, it tends to go up at that point. Now you're into the thousand board feet type range. Again, it's going to vary from importer to importer or from species to species and from time of year as well. You know, in the middle of summer and decking season, those decking boards are going to be um, a, a totally different story than if you try to buy them in the fall. If you're trying to buy uh, an exotic from a country that's in the middle of a monsoon or rainy season, it's gonna be a totally different price than when you're buying it outside of that. There's a lot of different factors that play into this, which is the next thing about buying wholesale. Say you're successful and say you place that wholesale order. Don't expect to get that exact same deal six months from now. Heck, you might not even get it a week from now. It's constantly in flux. The prices that the importer is paying are constantly changing. The sawmill that they're buying from is constantly changing. The freight rate is constantly changing. Right now, it's just going up and up and up and up and up. <clears throat> Which brings me to my last point. You might be surprised how little you actually save by going up in quantity right now. Because so much of the cost of lumber is not actually the lumber, it's the handling and the shipping and all of the other labor that goes around the lumber itself. Buying in a larger quantity will help you save a little, but you might be surprised 
how little you actually save. So that's my, my diatribe on that. <clears throat> I do think that starting with your local dealer and just starting up the conversation is a good way to go. And if they can't help you, they probably will refer you to the person that they have bought their lumber from. It's not usually a big secret. Um, again, the thing that I urge you is just be aware of the long term, what that might mean for your local dealer. Okay, so I guess it's time to talk about. So you want to start a lumber yard. You have bought a wood miser or some brand of bandsaw or you built one yourself. You are sawing up logs, you're turning into boards. You started to realize, hey, I'm selling this to some woodworkers here and there and this could be interesting. Um, what do I, could I make a go of this? Well, the first thing you need to think about is what's your niche? You know, are, are you an urban logger? Where are you getting, where are you getting your materials? Where are you getting your logs? Is that source sustainable? And certainly from an environmental perspective, is it sustainable? But is it from a supply chain perspective sustainable? Can you continue to get those logs? Maybe you've tapped into a local municipality and they've got more logs than you know what to do with. The thing is, if you're if you turn them away, if they come to you and say, we've got 10 logs and you take them and they come to you three days later and say, we've got 10 more logs and you turn them away, they may not always be there. They might find someone else to give those logs to. So you want to think about your supply of logs, the supply of, of raw material. And can you continuously get that? <clears throat> what kind of space do you have to maintain a log yard? Um, what kind of space do you have to maintain inventory? Maybe you're not sawing up your own logs. Maybe you're buying boards and then you're reselling them. The one thing about the lumber business is the turn rate is quite slow compared to a lot of other industries. Now, this is going to vary dramatically from the retail space to the wholesale space to the type of species to the actual market you're in. But for the most part, the turn rate is, is pretty slow. You'll bring in some boards and let's just say all the work has already been done upstream. <clears throat> the board has been, you know, the log has been sawn into boards. The boards have been kiln dried they're essentially ready to be sold. You may bring those in and they may sit in your yard for six months. Um, maybe you'll sell, say you bring in a thousand board feet. And if you're a retail operation, maybe you'll sell three board feet here, 20 board feet here, 50 board feet there of that initial thousand. <clears throat> so you brought in that thousand board feet at a cost of X. Um, that cost was based upon the grade of that thousand board feet. The grade is a percentage thing. Um, for the most part, if you bore order FAS, you can't expect that every single board in that thousand board feet is FAS. It's going to be the overwhelming percentage of it, but you're always going to find some boards that are kind of outliers in there. So as you're selling off that thousand board feet, its cost remains constant, right? You bought it at X. Um, you may bring in additional boards that were X plus two, or X minus two. Um, so that inventory thing is constantly changing. Your cost is constantly changing, but you can't necessarily be constantly changing your price. You know, you've got a price per species, but you may have a cost, like seven different costs per species, which can be kind of an issue. So you need to be constantly thinking about that source. Where am I getting it? How long does it take to get it? How much can I get? And what kind of cost fluctuation am I seeing there? That's something to be really concerned about. If your niche is uh, three or four different species that maybe the larger commercial yards don't have, 
that can be great as far as little competition for people selling that species. But if you can't get it and you're constantly running out, your customers can't necessarily rely on you. So that's something to, to really think about. You also need to look at where is the established customer base going? Um, margins in the lumber industry are quite tight. So pricing is not really a competitive model. Trying to say, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, this guy over here is selling cherry for $5 a board foot. I'm going to sell it for $4 a board foot. I can almost guarantee you if you knock a dollar off your board foot price, you're probably going to be losing money. That's how tight the margins are in the lumber industry. So it's not really the best way to go about it by, you know, a race to the bottom on price. You have to figure out other ways to be competitive. That could be in service. It could be in additional transformation services like millwork. It could be in the sizes of the boards or the grade or the quality of the boards. Or as I said before, it could be, um, a unique species. Maybe you carry sassafras and no one else does. You have an urban logging source. You have reclaimed, you, you know, your boards are all unique. These are the things you need to think about. What is your competitive advantage? What makes your particular business unique? Once you have that, you need to start to understand how that translates to your target customer. You know, is your target customer a weekend woodworker or is it an architect? Very, very different customers, very different volumes, very different grades, uh, very different species. It's important to know those things and who you're really going after and making sure that not only your, your marketing, but your inventory matches that as well. You need to understand your delivery process. And I don't necessarily mean do we deliver you know, on a truck, but when someone comes in to buy lumber or say someone calls you on the phone and says, I need lumber, what does that process look like? Do they you know, as a true retail yard where this, the customer comes in, picks through a stack, picks the boards they want, carries them to the front desk, checks out and moves on. Or is it the type of situation where they come in and say, I'm looking for X, you know, board feet, you go and pick it, pull it for them. Um, they sort through it and then go on their way, or you pull out the boards and give it to them and go on their way. All of that stuff factors into overhead, factors into labor, factors into the customer experience. You need to kind of understand that. Every model has its place, but every model also has its pros and cons that will affect how many hours you have in the day. You know, if you're constantly coming in and putting lumber back that customers have taken down or constantly reshuffling your inventory because of how your delivery process works, it's just additional time in your day you need to think about. You need to be very aware that there's a long delay on your ROI. Um, you have maybe purchased some logs, or maybe you didn't buy any logs, um, but you've sawn those logs, and the first time you actually see some money from those logs could be a week, could be six months, could be six years. You know, that particular log you've sawn into boards and it's been sitting around, you don't actually sell off that entire log till six years from now. So you take that log and you're estimating the board footage out of it. You saw it up and you think, okay, great. I got 200 board feet out of that log. I'm selling this particular species at $2 a board foot. I'm going to make $400 on this log. Well, yeah, you might, but it might take you six years to make $400 on that log. It's something to be aware of that the turn um, on that ROI can be quite slow on a woodworking product. Again, this will depend entirely upon who your target demographic is. If it's weekend woodworkers, it's gonna be a very slow turn rate. You know, you may not have a lot of large scale orders that you can move an entire flitch all at once. Um, you need to be aware that the large portion of your customers will have a general overall lack of knowledge 
about the organic nature of the product. As woodworkers, we know that wood moves. A lot of people don't. A lot of people are unaware of that. A lot of people are used to composite engineer materials that stay the same color, you know, until doomsday. They don't move, they don't crack, they don't split. Um, and a lot of people expect the wood they buy to behave the same way. And you need to be prepared to educate customers. You need to be prepared to deal with customers who are not happy because the board checked or the board changed color or the board moved and buckled. And their tendency is to want to blame the wood and say, you sold me bad wood. Now, that's not to say there's no bad wood on the market. There are kiln drying defects. There are all kinds of things that, that can make, you know, the, you can point a finger at the lumberyard order and say, you did bad. But a lot of times it's the organic nature of wood and many customers don't know that. So I'm not saying be pedantic and, you know, sell every board with a big, long waiver sheet. You can't do that. But it's important to be able to respond to the customers who come in, educate them and help them figure out a solution to their buckled board or their checked board or something like that. The next thing to think about is transformation of the product and pricing therein. Um, rough sawn lumber is probably the, the easiest thing. You know, you saw some boards and people come in and buy the boards. More and more these days, people want a planed board. They want it S2S or at least skip plane. Many instances, they want it S4S. That's a molded product. Well, certainly you need the machinery and the overhead and the upkeep of those machines. You need the time and the staff to run those machines. So there's a lot that goes into the pricing. This is why a lot of times milled materials are sold by the linear foot and not by the board foot anymore because it's too difficult to think of it in terms of board foot because that original board foot, that volume, some of that is lost in the form of sawdust, but there was still cost associated with that. Say you lose a quarter of a board foot on that board in milling it. Where did that quarter board foot go? You still paid for that when you bought that log or you bought that board, but now that has gone up the dust collection. You know, these are things to, to think about. You need to be aware of your product and pricing as it transforms from log to finished product. I'll give you a, a hint. The price always goes up. <laughs> the labor and all of the loss and all the wastage that goes into making milled products, it has to be accounted for somewhere. You know, it's not free, folks. And I'd love to think that as a business owner, you would just eat that, you know, and make sure that it's not passed on to your customers. But that's a good way to go out of business. That's why milled products cost more. And when people say, you know, when they try to do a board foot calculation, they bought this milled, this three quarter by six by eight foot board. And they're thinking, you know, the price on this, if the board foot, the price is like $16 a board foot. That's ridiculous. I can buy cherry over here for $5 a board foot. Well, there is a transformation. There's an additional cost that comes with that. And that may be a bit of an extreme example. But anytime you start to look at milled products and calculate a board foot price, you'll be shocked. You'll think, oh my God, this is so expensive for board foot. That's because of all of that transformation, all of that waste, all of that time, that labor, all of that overhead that went into producing that. It's important to have an understanding of that. There are times when it's okay to just go ahead and join a board for a customer just as a customer service thing. But if you end up joining 10 boards, 100 boards, there's a point where you have to start charging for that. There's a point where good customer service becomes a losing business. <laughs> so be very, very aware of those transformations. Moreover, once you transform something, you need to have a very strict policy in place for returns. Can you accept um, a board back if you sell... 500 board feet to somebody of milled material and they only use, you know, or 500 pieces and they only use 450 and they try to bring back those 50 pieces. Will you take that back? 
what can you do with it? Maybe you will. Maybe it's a product that you do a lot with and you can then turn around and sell it to somebody else, but you need to have a policy in place to expect those returns to come around. Always, always be cognizant of the overhead, the overhead on the labor, the overhead on the machinery, the overhead on the waste, um, you know, waste lost in milling a board, but then also the disposal of the waste. You're generating a lot of sawdust. What do you do with it? You know, as a weekend woodworker, you might be able to, you know, take it out to the curb once a week and the city will take it away. Or maybe you can spread it in your flower beds. But if you're a full on business producing, you know, thousands of board feet, um, thousands of linear feet of, of, of molding or something, that's a lot of sawdust. And you may have to actually pay for someone to come and take that away. You might get lucky and you might have a way to actually sell it to someone to take it away. But all of this stuff is things to think about. This is really no different from any business. It's just understanding the ins and outs of the particular product you're selling. The biggest thing that I see is the first point. People don't really think about where am I going to continue to get logs? They think, oh, I was able to get 10 logs really, really easily. So I can just go back to that same source. Well, you might find that that source has moved on to another supplier because they're still, they've got to find a thing, something to do. They're producing you know, 100 logs a week. You took 10 that leaves 90 more. And ideally, they're trying to give those 100 logs a week to one person so they don't have to be driving all over creation to dump those off. Again, time, materials, labor, all that stuff on in their own business. So you need to be really good about fostering relationships so that you constantly have a supply, a raw material supply that you can produce into boards. But you also need to be thinking about um, constantly refilling the inventory. You've sawn up a bunch of slabs, and now you're going to wait to sell those slabs. Well, if you don't produce 20 more slabs, there's going to be this huge gap in your revenue stream. If you sell off the 20 slabs and you haven't produced 20 more, there could be six months of time before those slabs have been sawn and dried and ready to sell. So again, depends upon your model. If you're selling green lumber, air dried or kiln dried, all of this stuff has to be thought through. So again, I'm not giving any any uh, earth shattering advice here that you could almost plug in any widget in this instance and say it's the same thing. Know your market, know your supply chain, know the eccentricities of your particular product, um, and most importantly, know what your customer wants and know the, com the, the, the competition within your particular niche. All of this stuff is something to come into bear. Um, there's no reason why you can't make a successful business. And I think as more and more people turn towards local sourcing for lumber, the regionality and, and the, the species, the inventory, uh, regional nature of the inventory is going to be the competitive advantage. Um, the, the ability for someone to have a tree in their yard sawn into boards is a competitive advantage. It's not really easy to find these days. So you need to think about those things and how it fits into the current marketplace of lumber yards, wholesalers, importers, things like that. Will you be interfering with them? Um, will you be a competitor to them? Or will you be producing something so different that your paths will never cross? Those are the things to think about. So there's the 10,000 foot view. I could probably talk about this forever. If people have specific questions, maybe you're looking at this for yourself and thinking, I'm going to do this. Let me know. Send me an email, lumberupdate at gmail.com or reach out to me on Instagram or go to lumberupdate.com. There's a contact form there as well. I'd love to hear from some folks. Um, I'd love to hear from some folks who have made a go of it and what they've learned along the way. We've certainly talked to a couple of sawmills in the history of the show, and um, there's been all kinds of stuff that have come out of that. So hopefully this gives you some help and you're either excited about it or now you're thinking, ooh, starting a lumberyard was a bad idea. Either way, you've come away a little bit more informed. <laughs> 
So thanks everybody for the questions this week. Thanks for the um, suggestions, uh, the links. I got some really good links this week. And thank you as always to those who sponsor the show. If you are interested in sponsoring the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. Uh, had a couple of new folks join me this week and I do appreciate that so much. So in the meantime, you can go buy some lumber or maybe you can go sell some lumber. Whatever. Good luck with it.